0: More than 200,000 unsolved cases have gone cold since 1980. And the people who committed those crimes, well, they could be living right next door in the same locations scattered around the world. By using social media, podcast platforms, case flyers, and hashtags, law enforcement and family are able to track the chatter and comments on certain cases, and you can join this movement by listening to our podcast, The Social Detective, on any of your streaming platforms. You can also join us on Instagram, Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, threads, Facebook, you name it, you can find us. Join The Social Detective and the Crime Solve Movement. Help us assist law enforcement by putting a few in the win column.
1: Hi everybody. Welcome back. This is Beth at the True Crime B&B. Today we are here for episode 86 and I have a special guest today. With me today is Mary Ann from the Social Detective Podcast. I'm going to have her talk a little bit because she has other things in the works that she might want to let you in on. So Mary Ann, Say hello and tell people all about you. Hey,
0: Beth. I am so excited. I have been wanting to be a part of True Crime B&B from the moment I ever met you guys. I am just loving your podcast. Thank you. You know, I started out as Crime Scene and Cupcakes, and then I turned into the social detective, and now... I'm going to eventually transition into Insinuation, a docu-series. Wow. We started the podcast in search of my best friend's killer. She was murdered 34 years ago. That's why this podcast was started. And just recently, on the anniversary of her murder, after 34 years, her killer was finally found. It's been a an incredible amazing ride and since then our podcast has assisted in helping solve two other crimes
1: that's amazing
0: yeah it's just been absolutely incredible we're not ready to put the podcast down
1: quite yet no of course not
0: yeah we've had several other families that have come out and said they really want us to create a platform and get awareness with their families cases as well and We are an investigative podcast. We do more than just share the cases. We dive deep. I am a cadaver dog handler, and I'm also a retired criminologist. We get into the weeds, and we try to find information. We never try to replace what law enforcement does. We just try to work hand-in-hand with them and the families in finding answers on these cases. What insinuation is going to do is create a call to action. It's going to find those cases like there's actually a huge problem with DCF right now here in Kansas and across the United States. Children are dying at an alarming rate because DCF is not doing what needs to be done and transparency is not happening. So we're going to be doing a call to action to show people what is happening and what you can do to get involved.
1: That's amazing.
0: So that's a little bit of what we do. You're going to be able to find us. You can come to The Social Detective. We have Instagram, TikTok. I still call it Twitter. I'm old. You will not be able to make me give that up. It's not X. It's Twitter. We have a YouTube account. I am really active on my TikTok. My son and Patrick, from not adding up, showed me how to use that. I miss Patrick. I miss him. Yes. He and I still talk quite a bit.
1: Oh, good. Awesome.
0: He's like another son in the family for me. But yeah, look for us.
1: I have a question that, because a long time ago, when we first started talking, probably a year and a half ago. You kind of gave me a rundown on how you became a forensic criminologist. Yes. How you kind of got to the point where you were there. You started out as, I think, a labor and delivery nurse?
0: Yes. I was a labor and delivery nurse. As I was doing that, a young woman had come in and she had been sexually assaulted. I had run into a sexual assault nurse examiner who Diana Shun, she had actually started the sexual assault nursing program at that hospital. She kind of inducted me into doing this and I became fascinated by the forensic side of that. Yeah, And I fell in love with, I know that sounds horrible, but you are with that person on the absolute worst
1: day of their life. Well, it's a calling. That's got to be a calling.
0: It truly was. And I'm glad you brought it up. And if I can kind of take this tangent for a minute, I fell in love with the forensics. I loved forensic nursing, but I wanted to see the forensics all the way through, especially when I found out that a lot of the sexual assault kits weren't getting tested.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's outrageous.
0: Oh, I was incensed, and I wanted to see it through. So I went back to school, and what I found out that if you wanted to be anywhere working within the crime scene field, you have to have law enforcement experience. Wow. And I was like, oh, guess what? I guess I got to go be a cop. <laughs> Wow. And so I enrolled into the Wichita Police Department and my life went on a chaotic tale from there.
1: It sounds like it. <laughs>
0: It really went on a chaotic tale that we're going to share a lot of that on
1: insinuation and we're actually
0: going to bring a lot of the people that I worked with on for
1: interviews through there as well. That's amazing. I didn't mean to jump the gun on bringing that subject up, but the reason I was asking was because I thought that's what you had told me, seeing someone else doing this work and thinking, oh my God, that's what I need to be doing. This is where I need to be spending my efforts and my energy. Yeah, But- I'm wondering if in the back of your mind when you started this, if Krista's murder also was thinking I could help other people who went through what I and her family went through by helping find these perpetrators. And I'm wondering if that was also an influence in your going into this field.
0: Absolutely. I think especially every young woman, every time I saw a young woman, and even though the police to this day continuously say that domestic violence situation that happened the week before her murder had nothing to do with her murder it still triggered me and so even every woman that ever was in a domestic violence situation every woman that ever came to the hospital that was ever raped that was ever assaulted was ever in one of those situations I would always see Krista
1: I I kind of suspected that that might be part of your motivation. I mean, obviously, it was a big impact on your life and a big influence. Yeah. Up until today. I mean, all your life, it's been a big influence. So, yeah. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. It still brings us full circle today. I mean, how many families she is still touching and changing the lives of. Yeah. Because. I'm not stopping. No.
1: I mean, I'm never going to stop. Good for you. I can't wait until your new podcast comes out and I can see where you can go because I wouldn't say you were tethered, but you had a focus in Social Detective that was, okay, here's what we're working on. But in Insinuation, the sky's the limit. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing to limit you on what you cover and what you go into there. So I can't wait to see what you do.
0: And in Social Detective, I feel like that is Krista Martin's legacy. I always feel like I can't really share a lot about myself because that was why it was created, was because of Krista. So I always feel like it's wrong to carry on a little bit about myself. And so Deb has assured me that. It's okay with our new podcast to dive into my career and talk about some of the cases that I worked on and some of the things I did. So I'm really excited to share, you know, the goals and the things that I got to do in my life. And it's okay to do that. It's okay to
1: go forward with that. Well, I really look forward to kind of following behind and seeing what you guys do with that. Should we get started on our cases today? Yeah, I'm excited in a way. I feel the same way. It's something that interests me, but I don't fetishize crime. Like, you know, people that say they fall asleep listening to true crime, I don't understand that because I'm so engaged with the stories and the cases and the lives of the people that suffered. I There's no way I can fall asleep listening to that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely, I never want to say, oh, you know, this is something I enjoy. It's something I want to make sure the information gets out there for a reason. Right. And and that's why I love what you guys do, because you can tell that's the motivation there. Thank you. And so I'm always excited for that.
1: Thank you for saying that. But you volunteered to bring us the hard story today. Yeah. So I know nothing about your story. So why don't you fill us in and let us know what you've been looking at?
0: Well, today I'm going to be a really bad guy because this is a really upsetting case. Okay. So today we're going to discuss the Fager family murders that occurred in Wichita, Kansas in December of 1987. Now, before we go too far into the case, I would like to take a moment and get to know the victims. Of course. Because that's what these cases are about. Mm -hmm. Now, the Fagers were a really close family. They worked really hard and they did really well for themselves. They took a lot of trips. They loved hiking, they loved the outdoors, they loved camping. They had a little pop up trailer they took everywhere. Their names were Philip and Mary. The mom and dad, and they both met while they were working at Boeing, because if you know anything about Wichita, we are the air capital. Most people make their money by working at aircraft industries. Okay, That's the primary employment here. Now, Mary, she had already had a daughter when she met Philip and that daughter was Kelly. Now, Kelly is the one that was 16 when these events occurred and Philip, he loved Kelly. Kelly's dad wasn't around, but he accepted Kelly. He took on the role of her dad. Not a problem. That was his daughter as far as he was concerned. And the family, they move into their dream home, and Mary gives birth to another daughter, who would be Sherry. And Sherry was nine in 1987. The only thing that they felt was missing from this perfect home was a sunroom with a hot tub they really wanted a hot tub with a sunroom okay and that was the thing at that time to have the hot tub inside the house and those little like florida rooms
1: yeah so that's what they really wanted and there's a lot of people taking those out now because of all the rotten wood and everything
0: (laughs) right it rots and molds everything and I really wish they never did this because this was a turning point in their life. Oh, no. Because they ended up hiring a man named Bill Butterworth. Just the name is odd enough as it is. Bill Butterworth. Bill Butterworth, or William Butterworth, came to provide the work to do on this edition. And as the family's going into the new year, it seems like everything's going great. Bill's getting almost all the work done, and everything seems to be going okay. And Mary Fager, after Christmas, she goes to Emporia, Kansas, to go see her family, because they didn't want to travel to Wichita. They're getting older, and the kids didn't want to go to Emporia. So just Mary went by herself, leaves Philip at home with the daughters, while she goes to Emporia, but she comes back to Wichita on December 31st of 1987. Okay. She gets home, and the first thing she notices is their house, even though it's just a little bit after 12 in the afternoon, the drapes are drawn, and they have these really heavy drapes, and she's like, why is the house all closed up? Right. She opens up the front door. The front door is locked. Nobody comes running to greet her. And she knows everybody's off because Boeing closes down for the holidays. Right. Okay. So she walks into the house. She goes and she opens the curtains. And as she turns around, she sees Philip on the floor. And it looks like there's a little bit of a scuffle. And he's wearing his heavy winter coat because it had been snowing and stuff outside. She sees he's wearing his coat. And she gets closer. And she sees he's got blood on him. Oh, no. Yeah. She is shocked. She is freaking out. What is going on? And she realizes her daughters haven't come to greet her. Right. So she starts going around the house, screaming her daughter's name. And then she starts thinking, well, wait a minute. Philip had his coat on and I didn't see the family Volkswagen in the driveway. Maybe Kelly took the other daughter somewhere and there's a killer in the house.
1: I need to get out of here. Was it obvious to her that someone had done this to him—it couldn't have been possible in her mind that he fell and hit his head. She couldn't tell. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: So her first thought was just she saw blood. She wasn't sure what happened to her. It looked like an intruder, but the blood was she saw was covering through his coat and it was on his chest.
1: Oh wow. Okay. Okay.
0: Now there was no weapon anywhere that she could see. Okay. But he did have his coat on, and the blood was all through his chest area. All right. Good question. And she rushed to him, and he wasn't moving. She was pretty sure he was dead. So she runs out of the house. She runs to the neighbors, and the neighbors call 911. And the police go to the neighbor's home, and they make contact with Mary. Mary explains what she's encountered, and the police immediately take Mary to the station keep her safe, get some information, and they put a bolo out, uh, be on the lookout, out on the Volkswagen, first thing, even before they go into the house. So, I mean, the police are taking this seriously. And they get into the home, and they start securing the home to see, number one, are the daughters anywhere in the house? Is there an intruder in the home? Right. While they're in the house, they do realize Philip has been shot. So, Philip is dead. And he has been shot. Oh, no. There is a wound through his chest. So he'd been shot twice. One bullet had been lodged in his spine and another one had been shot through the heart that had gone through back to his chest.
1: Wow, that's awful. Poor thing.
0: Yeah. So Mary's just, I can't even imagine No. what she could be going through. But what was really gets me is the force that that weapon had to make, because he was all bundled up in his coat when this occurred. And again, there's no weapon at the scene. Okay. So the police continue to make their way through the home. And as they're clearing the house, that's when one of the officers comes up to the hot tub. Trigger warning. This does involve children. As one of the officers comes up to the hot tub, he notices the top of the hot tub is bowed. So, the top cover is not closed all the way. And so he opens it up, and that's where he finds the girls. Both of them. Both of them. Oh my God. Sherry, the younger one, is in her pajamas, and Kelly, she was naked. Sherry had been tied with electrical tape and strangled. And Kelly also had electrical tape around her neck. So, this was a very rough scene for the officers. Of course. They aren't sure at that time how long that they had been there, but one of the officers did notice when he came up the newspaper for the 30th had been taken in, but the newspaper for the 31st hadn't been. Okay. So, they're like, okay, so we're pretty sure that this must have happened on the 30th, but that's not by scientific findings. That's just where they're kind of getting an idea
1: well i mean it's a it's a good first guess, I would think,
0: yeah, so they're in just thinking of that they're going to have to go tell Mary Fager her entire life while she was off opening Christmas gifts in Emporia. somebody had came in and annihilated her family, some monster for what reason that's just the one thing if you Followed the BTK case, and we hate using his initials. We hate it here in Kansas, but there's a reason I'm using it. Detective Ken Landwehr is the one who caught Dennis Rader. Detective Ken Landwehr was the lead detective on this case.
1: I've heard you talk about him related to Mary Krupper.
0: Yeah. Ken Landwehr is my dirty Harry. (laughs) I love Detective Ken Lanwer. He was the most amazing detective out there. Before he had passed away, even, he would talk about how he couldn't go to swimming pools, he couldn't see hot tubs. This case affected him years after. I mean, he could
1: not handle the smell of chlorine would make him physically ill after this case. Wow. But you know what? That's what made him a great cop. Yeah. You hear so many stories about bad ones who don't care if they got the right guy or not. They just want to close the case. He
0: wanted to get justice for Mary. During the investigation, they looked to see if there were any signs of a break-in, forced entry. They could find nothing. So it had to have been somebody that the family knew or had access to the home. Okay, who all would have access? And then that's when they realized, well, that day, Bill Butterworth was supposed to be working at the home. On December 30th, 1987, the day before Mary was supposed to return home, it was a really windy, bitter, cold day, and at 7 a.m., Bill Butterworth, the man building the sunroom for the Fagers, he had climbed into his van that had sunshine logos blazoned on the side. Well, the neighbors said they saw that van in front of the Fager home all day. So they knew that Van had been there, and his wife had said Bill hasn't returned home, and she wanted to file a missing persons because she hasn't seen Bill. She said the last time she saw Bill was that day, December 30th, 1987, at 7 a.m., when he had left to go work on the Fager home. He kissed her goodbye, and they have two fraternal twin children, that are six months of age and a three-year-old child.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So why would he just... But he must not be too old if he's got six-month-old twins. He was in his 30s. Okay.
0: Because he was a transplant from Los Angeles. So his wife, when the police show up at her door, she's like, oh, I need to report it missing because I haven't seen him. You would think you'd be a little bit more concerned having these young babies. And also his van is missing. So the police are wondering, is Bill Butterworth another victim, or is he the suspect? So there's a bolo out for the Fager's car. There's a bolo out for Butterworth's van. So they're trying to find a lot of moving pieces here. Right. In the meantime, while they've got these bolos out, the police begin to build a timeline for Philip Fager. And they know Philip Fager, the dad, drove the Volkswagen Rabbit to one of the three rental houses that he has that day on the 30th in the morning. He chatted with a plumber and they have gotten this from all of the interviews that they did with everyone and what they were able to piece together from all of the interviews, He got to the real house, Philip chatted with a plumber, and they even discussed Philip's new sunroom. It's supposed to be almost done. It should be done that day. The plumber stated Philip left the rental house around 1230. Now, what happened next the investigators pieced together from evidence they found at the crime scene between noon and one is when they think the killer entered the Fager home. But again, there are no signs of forcible entry. From autopsy, they think at that time is when the killer drowned Kelly, her nude body, in the hot tub. Now, her boyfriend states that Kelly, she would wear a bathing suit whenever she was in the hot tub. So they don't know why she would be nude. Right. Due to the length of time she was in the hot tub and the temperature, they're unable to determine if a sexual assault occurred. Kelly was then strangled with black electrical tape, but she was not bound with it. The killer then went and bound Sherry's wrist, the nine-year-old, behind her back with black electrical tape and then used that same type of tape to choke her. The killer thought she was dead. However, she was not. When he put her in the hot tub and put the lid on it, she drowned. That's when Philip Fager returns home, still bundled up from being outside, and the killer shot Philip once in the back. The bullet lodged in Philip's spine, and the second shot was fired point-blank range and went into his heart through and through.
1: I'm assuming it's Bill Butterworth at this point who did this. So did he honestly think that he was going to kill both of these girls and leave and the father isn't going to have any idea who did this? You know, if the father had not come home before Butterworth took off, then the dad would have gone, well, the only person who could have gotten in here would have been the guy who was building my sunroom.
0: Bill, Butterworth's excuses. Become even more nonsensical. And what becomes even worse is how many people buy it.
1: Yeah, people are stupid.
0: (sighs) Okay, so Mary Fager returns home a few days later after all of this occurs. And she starts looking around the house Is anything missing? Do I notice anything? Is anything damaged? Okay, nothing's been stolen. Nothing's damaged. She does notice the bathroom door on one of the bathrooms looks like somebody tried to break into that bathroom. Okay. She does notice like it might have been kicked in. Somebody tried to break it down. So was one of the kids trying to hide in the bathroom? Something like that. The police also found out Philip Fager doesn't own a gun. But guess who does own a gun? BB. Yeah! Bill Butterworth owns a gun. However. Nobody knows where Bill Butterworth's gun is.
1: I think it's with Bill.
0: So this is where you're going to really start to get angry.
1: I'm already a little bit annoyed here.
0: So the neighbors say, again, they saw Butterworth's van parked outside Fager's home most of the day. And one neighbor is able to say, I can tell you the exact time because I went to work at 245 and that van, I know for a fact, was sitting there. So... The police are still focused on this 1983 gray Volkswagen Rabbit Mm -hmm. because they found Butterworth's van. Butterworth's van was at the McDonald's that coincidentally is right down the street from the Fager home that Kelly, the daughter, actually worked at with the keys in the ignition. And it's really jacked up so you can't get it in reverse or anything. So it's kind of a mess but they've got the van. No Bill Butterworth, but they have the van. Still can't find their car. Then the Wichita Police Department gets a phone call from a family member of Bill Butterworth's wife. And they said, we thought you might want to know that Bill Butterworth's wife and Bill, they've been talking on the phone. Bill's in Florida. He's staying at a Howard Johnson's in Florida. so." Oh, good grief. The police department gets a trace on her phone. And four days later, they find out Bill Butterworth has been calling his wife from a Howard Johnson's in Stewart, Florida. The Wichita police send Florida police to the Howard Johnson's. And that's where they find Bill Butterworth standing outside at a payphone talking to his wife. (sighs) The Fager family Volkswagen parked out on the street. Jesus. And when they pat Bill Butterworth down, guess what? He's got the car keys in his pocket, but no gun.
1: Oh. I was going for the gun, sorry.
0: I wish he had a gun on him. That would have made things so much easier.
1: Well, he threw it out the window somewhere between Kansas and Florida. Well,
0: they take Bill Butterworth into custody for Grand Theft Auto because That's the reason they have to hold him right now. He's got the Fager family car. Yeah. But the police, Detective Landwehr wants to be thorough. He tells them, dust the car. See if anyone else's fingerprints. So he can't say, well, somebody held me hostage. Somebody else brought me there. Check that car out. Mm -hmm. So all it has is Bill and the Fager's fingerprints on the car. What's also interesting is... Bill's wife says the last time she saw Bill, he was wearing jeans, sneakers, a green t shirt with his business logo on the front, and a satin Wichita State University jacket. But at the time of his arrest, he's wearing khakis, a polo, and a pair of loafers. Now, this is going to be important because this is four days later. He has a few dollars in his pocket, no wallet. No wedding ring. And when detectives from Wichita arrive, Bill tells them he has amnesia. Uh Uh-huh. That he can't remember anything. He doesn't remember how he got to Florida. He cannot remember anything since 7 a.m. December 30th to ending up in Florida. He doesn't know how he got there. He cannot tell you anything.
1: That is super convenient, Bill.
0: Yeah. So he's held in Florida. They try to extradite him back to Wichita, Kansas. And he's charged with three counts of first-degree murder. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about William Thomas Butterworth. He was born in 1954. He grew up in Los Angeles before he moved to Wichita, Kansas in 1977. Now, he didn't have any relatives in the area when he moved to Wichita but he did have lots of friends he got married and he left the first business he worked at which was called Sunshine Rooms and Sunshine Installations to start his own sunroom business he was even named Remodeler of the Month by the National Association of Home Builders earlier customers never had a bad word to say about him but by late 1986 Because the sunroom hot tub phase is dying out. He had to lay off his workers. He stopped paying rent. He couldn't renew his contractor's license. And, you know, he's a new father. He's got the three-year-old child. And then he has these six-month-old fraternal twins. And I've seen a few people say, well, maybe he just cracked having these new babies. And maybe that's why he has the amnesia. I don't think so. Postpartum dad depression.
1: Color me skeptical.
0: Yeah. So I've never heard of somebody cracking so hard that they take their employer's car after that family has been murdered and drive to Florida. What I would be interested in is those phone conversations he had with his wife. Yeah. Because he had the state of mind to clean out his family's bank account before leaving Wichita.
1: Oh, that was nice for mom and the kids.
0: Yeah. I mean, if I was his wife, I would have had a few questions.
1: Yeah. And also, if he's got amnesia, and then how in the hell is he calling his wife from payphones between Kansas and Florida?
0: Right. So I have quite a few questions, but in court, he sticks to the story of not remembering anything, and she sticks by his side.
1: Moron.
0: Yeah. Butterworth, he tries to fight extradition at first. He doesn't want to come back. He tries to fight everything. But a lot of his friends and family, they're standing up for him saying he would never kill anybody. He would never do anything. Yeah. This is not Bill. He wouldn't do this but he eventually gets extradited back and he comes to face a jury of his peers. And it's a jury of seven women, five men, two alternates. That's important. His trial started May 9th, 1988. That's really quick. That I think is another really important part. It's not really a lot of time. I think the prosecutor was way too cocky. Because everybody thought, oh, it's obvious he's guilty, right? It's obvious. Just five months later, they're already going to court on a triple homicide. Right. And Bill is still saying he cannot remember anything. So the judge has a great idea. Bill should undergo hypnosis. Not only that, Bill gets this public defender. This public defender is Richard Nay. If you've heard of that name before, Richard Nay is also the same attorney who ends up defending Dennis Rader.
1: I didn't know the attorney's name, but that's interesting information.
0: Yeah, it's a mess. They end up, this all goes to Supreme Court, whether or not to do this hypnosis.
1: It went to the state Supreme Court?
0: It went to the state Supreme Court. He only was hypnotized nine times. The guy didn't do any recordings. No audio recordings, no visual recordings, and he took notes to the best of what he could remember. Oh, for... The psychologists could remember of what Bill said. So this was just an entire cluster.
1: It is a cluster. Yeah.
0: I mean, I was so angry reading all of this. Then on top of it, Mary Fager, the victim's wife, gets a letter that is confirmed to be from btk so he decides to stir all of this up and he jumps in the middle of all of this and he says you know what i didn't kill your family but the guy who did it i really respect how he did it he did a damn good job so
1: what a fucker
0: i tell you every time i see or hear his name i get so angry but Unfortunately, also, that throws a lot of doubt into everybody's mind of, well, maybe BTK, he's still out there. Did he have something to do with it? But unfortunately, we also had a lot of murders going on at that time. Yeah. And we also had this young girl. I did a podcast on her crime. There was a young 15-year-old girl who was murdered. Her body was put into a pond. She was stabbed 40 times. Her hands were bound behind her back. So Richard Ney says, you know, maybe there's a satanic worshiper going around. There's two girls that are found in water. So these water crimes might all lead to the same thing. Maybe BTK is doing these water crimes now. So
1: I just I'm in disbelief. It's like they're just grasping at every trope they can think of.
0: Yeah. It's like he's just throwing a bunch of spaghetti on the wall to see what sticks.
1: It's ridiculous ridiculous
0: the trial was held at the cedric county courthouse and it was on our 10th floor the courthouse would open at nine there were lines wrapping around down the street of people all waiting to go it was a standing room only and the judge finally said no no more we're closing the courtroom this has become a spectacle okay we're not doing this anymore everybody out it just became ridiculous how this case got it it was absolutely crazy let's go to the psychologist air quotes psychologist this dr pace i would like to read to you what bill butterworth said that through his hypnotism he believes he recalls what happened the day the fagers were murdered so He says on December 30th, he goes to the Fager home to finish work on the sunroom. He lets himself into their house with his own key. He didn't hear or see anyone in the house, and he spent the morning adding a coat of varnish to the interior doors. As he was about to leave for lunch, Butterworth says Philip Fager comes home and the two discussed the best way to alleviate drainage problems. Butterworth fixed the drainage problem. And then he drives his van to the McDonald's where his van is found at. Hmm. He says he drives that van, though, back to the house at one thirty. Again, neighbors say that van was there all day. It never left. Right. Now, Bill says he gets to the house around 1.30, and he smells chlorine. He hears what sounds like the hot tub is running, bubbles and jets. And he says his mind went immediately to Kelly Fager has her boyfriend over, and they're doing something in the hot tub.
1: With the dad home?
0: Yeah. All right. And he says, oh, I'm just really, really uncomfortable with this. I don't want to see what's going on. So I'm going to leave the house for a while and let them do their thing. And so he decides to go run a few errands. This is really interesting to me. Now, this would fall into the timeline of when the police think they were killed and then somebody leaves. Okay. So he said he feels uncomfortable. He leaves. He's going to go to Montgomery Wards. Now, he doesn't know where his wallet is. He doesn't know where his wedding ring is. He doesn't know what happened to the clothes he was wearing that day. But by damn it, he has his receipt for Montgomery Wards that he was shopping at. He still has that receipt.
1: Well, how do you shop at Montgomery Wards without your wallet?
0: Yeah. So he went to Montgomery Wards and he picks up the clothes that he happened to be wearing when he's picked up by police. So I find that really interesting. Yeah. Now, while he was there, the clerk remembers seeing him and he also saw some acquaintances, one of which was a retired police captain. The police captain says he wasn't comfortable relaying what they talked about. But he will say that he didn't think the interaction was odd, and he didn't think Bill Butterworth seemed overly disheveled or anything like that. Bill Butterworth says he then returns to the house, grabs his tools because it's getting dark, and that's when he drops a pencil, and it falls down the basement stairs. He goes downstairs, and he sees Sherry Fager in the hot tub. He says at that time he did not see Kelly Fager. He discusses how he heroically tries to save Sherry Fager and when he couldn't lift this nine-year-old girl out of the hot tub.
1: In her pajamas.
0: In her pajamas. He doesn't discuss how she's bound or anything. He runs upstairs to try to find a phone to call for help. But instead, he finds Philip Fager laying on the floor. And he said, but he didn't appear to be injured. He was just laying there. But when he touched him, he didn't move. And he sees Philip Fager's keys laying next to Philip. And when he's next to Philip, that's when he hears like a cry or a scream come from downstairs. Now, remind you, he's already seen one of the girls in the hot tub. Right. But he hears this noise, grabs the keys, and runs out of the house. First, he was going to call for help, but no, he hears a scream and he decides to just run away. (sighs) And he goes to get into his van, realizes he has the wrong keys. He has Phillips' keys, but he has the presence of mind to grab that Montgomery Ward's bag and go jump into Phillips' car. Then he drives away, stops by the bank clears out his account. And then he says his mind goes blank again until he gets to Florida.
1: So at this point, what would be the reason to go clear out your bank account? If you've done nothing wrong, why would you go clear out your bank account and run away?
0: He says he just doesn't understand, but he feels ashamed. And he was a coward. He was just so concerned. Yeah, and he can't recover any more of his memory except for that. When he calls his wife from Florida, he just he felt bad, and he said yes, he had a gun, but he got rid of that gun three months before the Faggers were ever killed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But he doesn't remember who he had gotten rid of that gun to.
1: It's mighty convenient that it was three months before. Yeah, there's nothing about any of this story. Okay,
0: so. Us as the average people, we're looking at this and we're saying, this is
1: cut and dried. It's a bunch of crap. It's all crap. (laughs) This is all crap. And yes,
0: he had character witnesses. He had friends and he had family saying, he's a nice guy. He's a wonderful guy. He had people running into him at the store saying, well, he didn't seem freaked out. You know, now there was a few people that said that Kelly Fager, the 16-year-old, did say that Butterworth creeped her out, and he had shown up to McDonald's a few times while she was working and made her feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So the prosecutor did bring that up, but overall, I feel like the prosecutor was cocky, but they closed it at this. The prosecutor thought there is no way somebody in their right mind would believe this cock and bull story. But unfortunately, we live in Kansas, and this is a time when satanic panic was running amok in
1: Kansas. Everywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, everywhere. And the jury came back the next day with a not guilty, and everybody, I mean, the front page of the Wichita Eagle said the jury fell for a lie. Yeah. The jury members began receiving death threats. Everybody was incensed, but Bill Butterworth decided he was not going anywhere. He did a story with people from the Wichita Eagles saying that he still couldn't recover his memory, and this was some months later. I've tried to track him down since then. I haven't been able to. Mary Fager, I've tried. I mean, there is one person that, did not step away from media. And that is the jury foreman. I want to talk about the jury foreman for a minute. All right. His name is Ron Blazy. Ron Blazy, very strong in the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church is very strong in Wichita, Kansas. All right. I have my own very strong feelings about the church.
1: I think a lot of us do. that That's another story.
0: Yeah. So... This jury foreman, he ended up having these pamphlets made up under the Catholic Church. And it was called The Light and Dark of Butterworth. And it explained that it was Satan that was to blame for the Fagers murder and for all the murders that were going on and all of the evil. And Bill Butterworth was not to be blamed for any of this.
1: But he was saying that it was Bill that. You know, his body did it, but he was just possessed by Satan.
0: Bill was possessed. Bill was possessed by Satan. This is a jury foreman. And why our prosecutor never went back? Because this guy not only printed up these pamphlets and went door to door. Yes, on the weekends, we would receive knocks on our door from churchgoers. To talk to us about how Bill Butterworth never killed anyone because he was possessed by Satan. This is a man that was acquitted by a jury.
1: Okay, so if you are the jury foreman, and if you make this controversial decision to let this guy off for a murder that it seems to me pretty clear that he did, how do you justify in your mind, going back now, and trying to bully all of Wichita into believing that this guy didn't do it when everybody freaking knows he did it. That's the most insecure move I've ever seen uh, of a guy who made a decision and now it's like, oh, you don't agree with me? Well, here's why I'm right and you're wrong. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, this guy. This guy. This guy, not only was he the leader of this jury and promoted for this, he ends up moving to Missouri. He had to come back to do some paperwork or something 15 years later. He meets with the Wichita Eagle again to talk about how horrible we are in Wichita. He still stands by his decision. He still stands by all of this and says, how uh, we're the horrible people because we are the ones that didn't get that there is Satan and
1: we don't get this. And we just didn't understand. I don't even have a response to that. Cause you can't reason with somebody who thinks that there's nothing you're ever going to tell him. That's going to make him see reason.
0: Cause I actually covered this case a while back and I still push on this case. I still look for anything. Because to me, is this an unsolved case? Is this, what is this case? Because the Wichita Police Department considers this a closed case.
1: That's because they got the right guy.
0: Yeah. As far as they're concerned, there is nowhere else to go with this case. This is a closed case. But I'm like, I feel like there are no answers for Mary. There are no answers for the fingerprint. And it, it upsets me. Yeah. I mean, this case truly upsets me. So the point, I reached out to Richard May, and I said, what are your thoughts? Do you feel like there is a killer still out there? Yeah. I feel like there's a killer still out there.
1: And he said, yeah. He's saying it's somebody other than his client, but you're saying it is his client who's just out there. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, I mean, and I was like, well, can I get a comment from you? Well, I don't comment on my client's cases, whether they're old, you know, whatever. And I said, well, I would just be really interested in you saying something. (laughs) So he did not want to say anything. And I told him I would continue to want to reach out to him because that's how I roll. And so (laughs) this is a case that doesn't truly, I feel like, have answers Yes, there is the one person who's accountable for the act. This is one of those things where you can't always trust a jury. No. Now, the DA, he ended up losing the next race out to Nola Folston the next year because, you know, obviously you didn't do your job either. This case changed
1: a lot in Wichita. I can see why it haunts you because it's a very upsetting thing. I don't understand how anybody bought that line of crap that he fed them. I don't know how anybody heard him say, well, you know, it's in there and I heard a scream and I just ran away, even though I was really trying to help and find a phone. But then I heard a scream and I ran away. So I just took his car and and now I have no memory of what happened after that. Yeah, That entire story is asinine. And anybody who thought, that that was the truth, is, I'm sorry, but you have really poor judgment.
0: Yeah, I really wanted to know if his wife was still with him. Because a lot of times, if marriages fall apart, you can't prosecute him again. But I would really like to hear, you know, the dude left you with no money. Yeah. He left you with nothing and no answers. I, I'd really like to hear what you thought about that.
1: Well, I just wonder, because there are a lot of cases where a parent lies to protect their child or a wife or a husband lies to protect their spouse. But why do you want to be with that person? Yeah. Why as a spouse, do you want to stay with, you know, uh, Richard Allen's wife, I think has left him. Yeah. She says, I do not want to be with the guy who can murder two little teenage girls. Yeah. Why would Bill Butterworth's wife? Yeah. Want to protect him? When he has left a woman with no family. Yeah. I just don't understand. It will never be clear in my heart how people can act this way and be this way and do these things and support these people. It'll never make sense to me. Yeah. That was absolutely grueling. Sorry. (laughs) No, I knew it would be. I knew having you come on was going to hurt my heart a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I'm the evil one. You do not take it easy on people, but your heart is in the right place because you're trying to get answers for people and I have a lot of respect for that. But if it's okay with you, I will attempt to tell you a story that will be a little bit I mean it's 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 also it's kind of a Bailey like story actually. Oh yay. You remember how hers used to be? She would almost kill us. Yes. So this is a hard one. This is from nearby me. Because I'm in the Atlanta area, and this is from about 30 miles from where I am. All right. So I'm going to tell you the story of Jalen Morris. Okay, I'm ready. Jennifer and Cal Morris have maintained a long, loving marriage. They built a large family, and they have raised and continue to raise six daughters and a son in McDonough, Georgia, which is about 30 miles southeast of Atlanta. Jennifer and Cal taught their family strong values. They instilled in their children that they should be respectful, but also expect to be treated respectfully by people in general, but especially by their partners. They taught them that they were all worthy of being treated right. Jalen, one of the two older daughters, was always shy, sweet, kind and compassionate, guarded and quiet. There's nothing in the world wrong with being sweet and kind because the world needs more people like that. Unfortunately, you and I both know... There are a lot of people who will look for those traits in a potential love interest because they know how to focus in and try to use those sweet traits to their own advantage to gain control in the relationship. Oh, yeah. Jalen, around the age of 23, had started dating a guy named Justin Lamar Wincombs. although I've also seen his name listed as Jamar, but I think that might be a nickname combining his first and middle names. So I'll stick with Justin because nicknames are for people who like you, not for people who are making a podcast about you. That's right. Justin and Jalen had dated for about a year with some normal ups and downs. When in October 2022, Jalen realized that she was pregnant. She was ecstatic. She'd grown up with six siblings and she couldn't wait to become a mother herself. She told Justin about it. But he wasn't at all excited about the news. Uh When he would call her, which was more and more often since the pregnancy news, he never wanted to know about the pregnancy. He just wanted to know where Jalen was. He wanted to know who she was with. He became a pretty typical controlling partner. He constantly wanted to know where she was. He didn't want her to spend time with her family. He wanted her to share her location with him all of the time. He seemed even more apathetic about the pregnancy once Jalen found out that they were going to have a son.
0: You'd figure he'd be
1: happier. You would think something, but this guy just can't seem to give a crap that they're going to have a baby. She knew she didn't want her son's dad to have such a poor attitude, but as she expressed concern to people around her, some tried to be positive by suggesting that he might warm up to being a father once it all became more real to him. Because if you've never had a child before and somebody says you're pregnant, For a guy, that might be hard to wrap your head around right away. So they were trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Jalen tried taking him to a prenatal appointment with her to help him start to understand this is a real thing that's happening here. But he was so verbally abusive and rude at the appointment that he was actually asked by the staff to leave. Oh,
0: wow. You gotta be pretty bad for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's starting to escalate. Get the heck out. Sir, goodbye. Jennifer and Cal had really grown into not liking Justin. They tried to give him a chance, but now they just, they couldn't see past it. They didn't appreciate his disrespect towards their daughter. They didn't like how controlling he was trying to be. And Jennifer told him he wasn't welcome at the family's home if he was going to treat their daughter that way. Jalen didn't live with them, so they couldn't control her. They couldn't tell her not to date him. But he wasn't going to be welcome at their house anymore. Jennifer gave him an in, though. If he began treating Jalen the way that she should be treated, lovingly, respectfully, then Jennifer and Cal would be happy to bring Justin into the family. Except that Justin just became more erratic and problematic in the months after he found out about the pregnancy. He was constantly texting and calling Jalen. He was very possessive, tried to destroy her confidence, talking bad about her, making her think she wasn't good enough even to do her job, let alone to be a mother. This is a tactic of coercive control that happens all the time. You break a person's confidence and isolate them from their friends and their family and it's a lot easier to control what they do. But Jalen could pretty much see what was happening. She was getting really tired of his verbal abuse and the constant control and the constant suspicion by Justin. She had even saved several recordings of Justin screaming at her and berating her. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, apparently... She had gotten her mom to record some on her phone. She knew she wanted to end the relationship, but it's very hard to push a controlling partner out of your life, especially when your shared child is getting ready to be born. When she tried to stop taking his calls, when she tried blocking him, like all controlling partners or exes, he found other ways to reach and harass her. He used his friend's phones and numbers she wouldn't know. He called her through Instagram. He called her through Facebook Messenger. Within an hour, she would get 50 missed calls. Wow. She called police to report the stalking and harassment, but since he had not physically harmed her, they refused to take a report. Jalen's dad, Cal, tried to be an example of a strong man and how to be a positive role model and a good dad. When Justin physically pushed Jalen one day at her job, and she hadn't had any physical abuse up until this point, but he came into her work, he was bothering her, and he shoved her. When Cal found out about that, Cal drove to her workplace and he had a man-to-man talk with Justin. He showed that her family was going to be there for Jalen and Justin needed to back off. Basically, don't lay your hands on my daughter. The more Jalen tried to extricate herself from Justin, the more tightly he tried to grab her back. He also reached out more and more to Cal who was, and I'm pretty sure still is, going through his own health issues. So Jalen's dad, fighting his own health battles, and concerned about his daughter and her imminent first-time motherhood, and now all of a sudden, this guy he didn't even like had started calling him for mental health support whenever he needed to talk to somebody. So when the baby was born in July 2023, this past July, although she didn't want to be in a relationship with him anymore, Jalen very considerately let Justin know that the baby had been born, and she really hoped to see a change in his attitude towards his son. But Justin never wanted to hear about the baby. He only wanted to know what Jalen was doing. Where was she? Who was she with? What was she wearing? (sighs) Jalen tried her best to give him a chance to be in his son's life, and so she would send him photos of his new son. But Justin never responded after receiving the photos of his son, or he would respond with his normal intrusive questions about her whereabouts and what she was doing. Jeez, yeah. Jalen had just started to get into the routine of new motherhood, Her son was now six weeks old. They were getting to know one another. She was figuring it all out like new mothers do, but she loved it. She adored this little boy, whose name I don't think needs to be shared here, even though all the news stories have it. Yeah. But I don't think there's any reason to give his name. She had tried so hard to be patient to give Justin a chance to be part of his son's life, and had put up with so much aggravation and anguish from him during the last year that when he called her on August 25th of this year, 2023, saying that he wanted to do better, she was skeptical based on the Justin that she had come to know, but she also really wanted to be optimistic. He told her that he was sorry, and he implied acceptance that the relationship was over by saying that he felt like they needed to end things amicably so that they could effectively co-parent their baby son. Jennifer didn't want Jalen to meet up with him. Cal told her it was not a good idea to meet up with him on his terms. Yeah. Jalen felt a lot of hesitation about it too. But if Justin was really turning a corner, she wanted to give her son a chance to get to know his father. He's only got one biological father. And if the guy's going to start to change and come through, then she wanted to give her baby a chance to know his dad. She was trying to do what she thought was the right thing for her son. Also, she knew that if she canceled, Justin was going to double down on the harassing calls and attempts to get back into her life. So Jennifer left Jalen with a reminder that if anything got weird or if she needed them, she should just call them and let them know, and they would immediately drive to where she was and help neutralize whatever the situation was. So Jalen got in her car and drove to Justin's apartment to let him meet his son. While she was there, Jalen texted her mom. She said, I'm about to leave. He's just sitting here. He says he wants to see the baby, but hasn't even held him. Jalen didn't want to push him to hold his son because she was worried that he could do something crazy. If he didn't want to hold him, she didn't want him to hold him. Yeah. Jennifer, the mom, texted her back and she said, that's because it's not about the baby. It's about controlling you. And he got what he wants by you being there. No response came from Jalen to that message. But ten minutes later, a message came from a number Jennifer didn't recognize, and the text read, I've been shot, Mom, I love you. And a few seconds later, please help me. Jennifer's first response to these horrifying messages was that someone must have texted a wrong number, because she didn't recognize the number. Then shortly afterward, she received a FaceTime video of someone lying on the ground, covered in blood. Oh my God. She couldn't tell who was in the video. It didn't look like anybody she knew. But Jennifer's first thought was to go tell Cal. Whoever this was probably needed help. So while she was talking to Cal, worried about this person in the video, her phone rang again, and Cal grabbed the phone and answered the call. And in the background, they heard their grandsons cry. And they suddenly realized that the injured person lying on the ground in the FaceTime video must have been their daughter Jalen. The owner of the phone who had made the phone call told them that Jalen had been shot, that Jalen and her son were both lying on the ground, and the owner of the phone provided the address of the apartment complex where this had happened. Jennifer and Cal immediately got in the car and raced there. Jalen had texted her mom on the stranger's phone just before passing out. By the time Jennifer and Cal reached the address, Jalen had already been taken away in an ambulance to the hospital. I see the look on your face. I know. Oh my God. (sighs) As a mother, you you can't even, can't even imagine what they were going through. Oh my gosh. So that was Cal's and Jennifer's learning of what had happened. But backing up to the last text that Jennifer had sent to Jalen, where she had said Justin had arranged this only as a means of controlling Jalen. That was spot on, obviously. Justin had lost his ability to exert any control over Jalen, so he had decided that he was going to kill her and then himself. Jalen had had that sinking feeling in her gut even as she followed through on her agreement to let Justin see the baby. She had arrived at his apartment in Morrow, Georgia, and he had let her in. He hadn't wanted to hold his son. He at first seemed okay, if detached. yeah. And he said something that convinced her to follow him back to the bedroom, but I couldn't find anywhere what it was he actually said to her. Maybe he said he had bought some baby things or something like that. When they got in there, Jalen told her mother he had zip ties prepared in the bedroom and he began acting aggressively towards her. She grabbed the baby tied to her body, turned and bolted for the front door after she heard Justin say, you shouldn't have come today. Now we're both going to die. Oh my God knowing she was the only one who could get her son and herself out of that place. Jalen shielded her son from his father, reached the front door, turned the doorknob, and started to pull the front door open as Justin fired a weapon at her, hitting her in the back. Jalen fell to the ground, but didn't have time to assess what had happened to her. She was still in danger. Her baby was still in danger. She still needed to get herself and her son out of that place. She had protected the baby from the first gunshot by shielding him with her body, but now that she had fallen, Justin stood over her. Oh, my it is believed that Jalen held her body in a hovering position over her baby on the floor as Justin shot her again twice more in the face.
0: Oh my God,
1: and this time he was convinced that he had killed her. Baby miraculously was unharmed. Jalen then watched as Justin turned the gun on himself and took his own life. It is inconceivable to even try to understand what Jalen was going through at this moment. I'm a mom. You're a mom. Oh. You have been through this horrifying thing. She couldn't stand up to open the door. She couldn't pick up her son. She certainly couldn't walk out of there. She had been shot three times, oh one that had pierced her spinal column, and twice in her face, shattering her bones, damaging her airway, she was losing a lot of blood. She knew she was going to pass out at some point, but she also knew there's no one else here to get her little boy out of this hellhole. If not for her, she was his mother and she had to make sure he was safe before she lost consciousness. So unbelievably Jalen, who could not use her legs at all at this point, oh. managed to army crawl back over to the door, pull it open further and then drag herself out of Justin's apartment so that someone could find her, someone would find her son, and someone could get them some help. This would be an impossibly difficult thing to do, even as a healthy, able-bodied person. Oh, yeah. Because that is one hell of a mom. That is one hell of a determined mom who's going to save that little boy. Yeah. Oh, my God. But she had been shot three times, and all she could use was her arms. Literally, her legs were dragging behind her. Oh, yeah. So she did it. She got herself out of the door, and she screamed to call so that someone would be able to see that she needed help. And a neighbor did hear her, and a neighbor did come to help. The neighbor came over. Someone called 911. I'm not sure if it's the same neighbor that helped her make the text to her mom. But somebody called 911, and as Jalen stayed conscious long enough to recite her mom's phone number, Jennifer Morris began receiving the texts that she had hoped were not meant for her. When medics arrived, Jalen's son had no injuries at all. He was unharmed. She had protected her little boy with such bravery and strength of spirit. It's just, just inconceivable to me. Yeah. What had happened here and how she had protected him. Man. Before Jennifer and Cal made it to the apartment, Jalen had already been transported to the hospital. She was placed on a ventilator because of damage to her airway. From there, she had been life-flighted to Grady Memorial Hospital, where she stayed for over a month, having three surgeries, at least three surgeries, to try to repair her mandible, and to graft in donor bone material from a cadaver. She was unable to swallow, so she couldn't eat. She couldn't speak until nearly a month after she was attacked, and it was quite a process to get her vocal cords to the point where speech wasn't a struggle. During the time that she was unable to speak, she needed to express to her family what had happened, what she had experienced. Jalen used a whiteboard to write down small snippets of what she remembered or things that haunted her. Some of the ones that Jennifer posted on their GoFundMe were as follows. I keep reliving how he said, you shouldn't have come. Now we're both going to die. I kept fighting for him, obviously meeting her baby. I just want to survive. When Jalen's condition was sufficiently stabilized, she was moved to a rehabilitation center, even though she continued to undergo additional procedures. Jalen was told by doctors it was likely she would never regain her ability to walk because of damage to her spinal cord. That was a big frustration for her as it's such a life-changing injury, but she goes to physical therapy five times per week and also meets with a counselor to address the mental and emotional effects of such a horrifying experience. She obviously suffers with PTSD. I think anybody would. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. This affects her ability to sleep. Loud noises, naturally, are alarming to her. The last update I saw was on GoFundMe, and it was from the last week of November. So, at the time, we're recording about three weeks ago. Jalen had been disappointed that she wasn't able to go home November 15th, as she had expected because there were some additional complications due to a random bone growing from soft tissue in her leg, and she had additional swelling. in Her leg wasn't shot, so I'm not sure how that happened exactly, but I'm not a doctor. I don't understand everything. But at least she was able to go home and spend Thanksgiving Day with her large, loving family. In the same update, however, we learned that Cal's health had become more challenging, and so he had to begin a new course of treatment, too, and I don't think it's appropriate to detail what his health challenges are. Uh-huh. I just think it's important to know that the family is going through a lot right now. Yeah. Jalen's baby boy was at home with her family during all of her therapies and rehabilitation. She found that to be extremely distressing. She's such a loving and attentive mother. And suddenly she couldn't be with her infant son, who by now, at the time we're recording, is about six months old. And she missed most of that with him. Oh. I can't imagine how unbearable that was for her. I just hope she took some solace in knowing that while she couldn't be with him as much as she wanted, the only reason he was okay was because of what she did to keep him safe. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's as much a mothering thing as you could possibly ever do. Jennifer, the mom, wants to spread the message that anyone in any kind of abusive relationship should immediately start to look for a safe way to get out of it. To paraphrase her, The first red flag is too many red flags, because I don't know why I can't speak for everyone, but I know in the past I have glossed over or justified red flags that I've seen in people. I've never been in an abusive relationship like that, but there are a lot of people I should have broken up with long before I did. Oh, yeah. And Jennifer wants people to prioritize their own well-being, prioritize being treated appropriately and correctly and respectfully in your relationship, because that's important, you have to love yourself enough to say, "This person is not right for me, and they do not deserve to be with me anyway. I kind of went off off script there. I remember what it's like to have a six-week old baby. I remember how everything is new, everything is complicated, but you love that baby with every cell in your body. Jalen's sacrifice to keep him safe inspires me so much because for her to have the presence of mind to save him and get herself out of that apartment so that she could be saved and continue to be his mother. I think Jalen should be so proud of what she accomplished and what she did. And her baby is so lucky to have such an amazing woman for his mother. My God. Jalen's mom, Jennifer, is her greatest advocate. And if you read any of the things that I read to prepare this case and this story, I think you would agree with me. She rightfully just shows so much love and pride for her daughter. Jennifer has done a lot of interviews with several news outlets and the family has been very open about what they've been through and what the future might hold. And even though they've been handling as much as possible by themselves, they have needed to make renovations to their home to make it wheelchair accessible. They have to get a vehicle that makes it possible for one person to help Jalen in and out of it single-handedly, not just because sometimes there's not another person there. But because Cal is also experiencing health issues, so he might be sick, he might be down, he might be at treatment himself. So Jalen's mom needs to be able to assist her by herself. So between what Jalen's been going through and her dad Cal's own health battles, this has been one hell of a difficult year for the Morris family. So I'm going to be putting their GoFundMe in the show notes, and I'm truly hoping that if some people are able, please join me in donating to this very worthy family. There is so much financial stress associated with a crime like this that leaves our survivor and survivors in a lot of our cases with a lot to deal with physically, emotionally. They have renovations they have to get done. They have to keep getting transportation back and forth so that they can do all the things they need to do. I'm just glad that this is such a solid and loving family who are all there to support one another. And I'm almost finished, but I want to leave you with a quote from Jennifer about her beautiful daughter, Jalen. It makes me sad because she goes through spurts, hits her legs, and says she is useless, but she isn't at all. I understand the frustration, but her legs don't define who you are and what you are going to accomplish. She has survived something that others wouldn't have been able to. She can't allow her disability to define her ability. I want her story to be told. I want her to feel empowered. Jalen knows she is extremely lucky to be alive. She believes she had guardian angels that day. She wrote on the whiteboard, I just want to survive. She misses the baby like crazy, and I can't even imagine the pain associated with that. She's a first-time mom and is missing out on everything, but she is so thankful to be alive. So I just hope that by now, Jalen has finally been able to get home to be with her family. And I'm personally sending all my vibes of love and health to both her and her dad. You can hear my voice kind of breaking up here because this family just really moves me. But maybe it hits harder because I just hope they can get some more financial help. They're good people and they deserve a break. And that is the story of heroine and survivor, Jalen Morris. Oh, I don't
0: know. I was all the way over here and I was feeling the case and just so touched by it and such an incredible story and Just one thing I want to remind people from that story is homicide is the greatest risk to women who are pregnant. And that includes after pregnancy within that first year. And so that especially in domestic violent relationships and Luckily, you know, she kept that strength and that's, that's just absolutely incredible. And I'm so glad that, you know, you're taking this podcast and we're going to be able to do something with it. It's a wonderful cause to be able to give to. I'm excited.
1: Her mom made another comment somewhere that, you know, it was a horrible thing to go through. And the fact that he took his own life, at least she never has to deal with his bullshit again. Yeah, You know, he put her through so much and tried to kill her. Who knows? He very well may have intended to kill the baby as well.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, I'm sure. So the fact that she saved them both, I just, I can't say enough how much admiration I have for that young woman. Yeah. 24 years old and just such presence of mind and such determination and strength. Good for her. And may her recovery go much better than she anticipates and may her life be beautiful with her little boy.
0: Absolutely absolutely. That's an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing that
1: Well thank you for bringing me the story that hurt my heart.
0: Oh yeah always
1: glad to do that. Well you know what I I run the risk every time somebody brings me on there that they're going to tell me a case that is just infuriating and yours definitely fell into that category because there's no reason it needed to end up the way it did not at all. No Marianne, you have been an amazing guest. I am so happy we finally got around to doing this. I am glad we did too. Mm-hmm. I look forward to always chatting with you again. Why don't you remind us where can people find you on social media and then from there or your link tree or whatever you want them to know
0: okay yes you can find the social detective and thank you for reminding me i have a link tree i forget i have that as well (laughs) Uh, you can find social detective on our link tree you can find it in our bio on our instagram tiktok twitter again i don't care what people say (laughs) you rebel i am a rebel we are also on Threads, but yeah, you can find us on all of the streaming services, wherever you can find a podcast, you will find us there. Awesome! Please look in our archives and check out the story, Solving Krista Martin. That case is near and dear to my heart. That is 34 years in the making. And I'm so glad
1: we finally have answers. Absolutely. I am so glad you also finally have answers. You do cover a lot of really important and really upsetting cases that either didn't get solved or they got solved, but they weren't solved. (laughs) Yes. You also have had, and I want to say maybe three, episodes where you were talking about crime investigation concepts. I think you had one about dogs.
0: Yes, I do cover cadaver dog science, paws for dogs and the law. Yes. That's right. That is a series I will pick back up. I do that in the spring when I'm active. I do training programs, and so it's something fun.
1: I'm interested in things like that.
0: So, yeah, I actually did a whole thing on, I've sat and I've done several interviews with psychopaths and smells and MRIs and all sorts of crazy stuff. So, yeah, that is something I want to do with the social detective, keeping that up. yeah. Starting to delve now that Krista's case is solved, is delving into some of the fun stuff. Something I don't think a lot of people are aware of as the social detective, I actually work on a lot of legislation. And I work with a lot of different groups trying to get legislation passed, you know, to try to make the world a better place.
1: That's kind of why I'm asking some of these questions, because I think that there's more to you than people see. If they just listen to a couple of episodes of your podcast.
0: Well, because yeah, I just got off the phone Friday with a cold case in Indianapolis with a cold case detective wanting to talk to me in Indianapolis to bring the dogs up there with a serial killer to take a look at that. Wow. And those are things that I do, you know. Right. Gotta toot your own horn sometimes. And I'm so bad about that. (laughs) I'm really bad.
1: I've got us completely off the rails. I'm sorry. Who put me in charge of this? <laughs> yeah, put me in charge. We just don't do that. But yeah. All right. We need to wrap this up because this is going to be one hell of an editing job. <laughs> sorry about that. No, it's been really interesting and I want to get the pithy stuff out of it. So all right. I think that covers everything then. Marianne, thank you for being here today. I I think even the people who already know who you are probably learned some things about you today. And I'm really happy about that because I think you are just an amazing professional with an amazing background and everything you bring to your podcast is great work. I could never do the things that you do. So you should be very proud of yourself.
0: Well, you're always able to get stuff out of me. So
1: well, thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening to episode 86. And I will see you back in a couple weeks. Thank you, Marianne. Goodbye. All right. Goodbye.
0: <laughs> sorry. Don't know why that's on.
1: I don't know technology. Your computer is like, why are we in the closet? Yeah. <laughs> why are we in the closet? What is happening? Ugh. I'm not sure. I want you to tell me this case. This is awful. Yeah, this is on. I said
0: I was going to be bad.
1: You don't mess around, girl. I, I don't mess around.
0: Sorry, kinda lost my train of thought. So better. Uh
1: oh Should be easy to find, right? Just look out the window and drive from Kansas to Florida. Holy shit. This is a bunch of it's a bunch of crap. It's all crap. When she tried to uh oh. We have a visitor. I hope you can't hear her purring while I talk. I have no way to edit that out.
0: Hello, baby. That's good ambiance.
1: All right. I don't know what I just said. Um, It's very hard to push a controlling partner out of your life. I can hear you purring really loud. This may not work. Maybe if I get her down and cover her up with something. <sighs> I don't know what to do. I don't know how to cover her up. Ah! The cat tried to strangle me with my headphone cord. Good grief. <laughs> you all right there? She wanted to create their own episode. Yeah, cat murders podcaster. Uh, During recording. But she goes to fickle... I'm going to try that in English this time. Sorry, I just went on a tangent. No, I did not follow directions. Did you think I was going to follow directions? Ha! Yeah. Why? Yeah. No, 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 no. But yeah.
0: But no. Yeah, so. Okay. And I've got this nap that's flying in here,
1: driving me nuts. It's going to fly into your mouth as soon as you start to say... Maybe I need something stronger than water. (laughs) I need one of your cocktail cupcakes. No, that sucks. Don't start over. I don't have time to be a social media professional. I already have a job. I don't know what episode this is. So back in a couple of weeks for whatever develops in that amount of time. (laughs) Can't tell you yet what that will be, but it'll be something.